Why is this episode called Natalie Shines? It's because it includes both Marky Mark and Madonna. And turns out, Natalie is a super fan of both. Enjoy! From the east coast of these United States, as far from Melrose Avenue as two people can be without falling into the Atlantic Ocean, this is Growing Up in the Dog Pound, props to Arsenio Hall, with Jamie and Natalie. like that, we travel back in time to Boston College, 1988 to 1992. So full disclosure, we are re-recording something tonight because um, our first attempt at it was a little problematic in terms of the tone. That's because we normally start with a funny story about BC and our BC related story this time around is not funny at all. So uh, we just want to say that from the start. Although it is connected to one of the Arsenio episodes that we're going to talk about. It's actually an event that Marky Mark references in his song, Wild Side. Yes. Yes, he does. And what he's talking about is an event that happened in 1989. So we were freshmen. And I'll just back up a little bit to to tell everybody the history of this. There's a couple reasons why we're considering this a, a BC story. One is it happened in our freshman year in Boston. And another is that it involves a BC graduate. And this is Carol DeMady. She graduates from BC in 1981, and one of her professors says, I've taught for 15 years at BC, and she is absolutely among the small group of most outstanding students I ever taught. I'm guessing first in her family to go to college, too. I think her parents were um, immigrants, or at least her father was. So that's, you know, even more compelling, right, that someone who first gets this chance is such an outstanding student. She graduates in 1981. In 1985, she graduates from Suffolk Law School, so she becomes a lawyer. Mm -hmm. She works as a a tax lawyer for a Boston publisher, so uh, in the same field as yours truly, although I'm not a tax lawyer, far from that. And in 1985, she marries Charles Stewart, and he's the manager of a first store in Newbury Street. And he seems like a bit of a poser, if I use today's language, because he tells her that he dropped out of Brown University due to um, an injury, but in fact, he never attended Brown. Right. So already, you know, why did he feel the need right. to lie to her? I mean, was it because he was intimidated by her intelligence and knew that he had to sort of have one up on her or something like that? I mean, I well, I think, know, yeah, at least like, he wants to make himself look like a, a good match, right? Like he, he knows that she's a high achiever right. and maybe he's not doing as much. So he throws that in. But it's an unfortunate marriage, to say the least. They marry in 85. By 89, she's pregnant, and they go to a birthing class, Lamaze class, at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Very common thing people do. Mm -hmm. And after the class, they're driving home, 
And Charles makes a frantic call to police saying that he and his wife have been shot in their car by a black man who forced his way into the car in the Mission Hill area of Boston, demanding cash and jewelry. He says the man shot him in the stomach and his wife, Carol, in the head. And oddly, the uh, first responders that come, the police and an ambulance, have a TV crew with them from the show Rescue 911. They just happen to be riding along. So this incident is uh, recorded in great detail. It takes him a, a while to get there, though, because for 13 minutes, Charles is driving around while shot in the stomach, trying to describe where he is in Boston and not being able to, which I have to say this actually can happen. I have at night in Boston, I find it very hard to describe where I am. So not the weirdest thing, but he sure. does um, waste crucial time as they're both shot and police can't get to him. And she dies within hours. He is hospitalized and cannot go to her funeral, but he writes a eulogy that became kind of famous that is read at her funeral. And it starts, um, good night, sweet wife, my love. God has called you to his hands, not to take you away from me or the happiness and gladness you brought me, but to bring you away from the cruelty and violence that fills this world. He said that for us to truly believe, we must know that his will was done and that there was some right in this meanest of acts. In our souls, we must forgive this sinner because he would too. Which is probably a fairly normal thing to say in a eulogy when there's a crime involved. But in this case, it, it rings true because he is asking for that forgiveness for himself. Correct. The thing is, too, with this story, it's like we never, um, you know, we've heard this kind of story a lot, you know, as far as. And especially she she was mm -hmm. she was pregnant, right? She she and it's like uh, it seems to be a common theme that like a lot of this seems to be a lot of instances in which pregnant women are murdered or violently assaulted, and it's just such a a weird thing to me because they're carrying life, which is a joyous thing, and you would think at at bet you know you would think that that would deter someone with a violent impulse from attacking them. They're carrying you know they're carrying another life inside them, and instead we we hear it over and over again. I think you know obviously the woman's carrying a life, but the man in a husband wife situation is also facing the fact that this is now more than just a marriage. It's going to be a lifelong relationship with this person no matter what. There's no divorcing and done if there's a child involved, you know, this. That's a that's a that's a great point. And if you are I mean the the idea that was proposed with Scott Peterson for folks that think that he's guilty and even the police have said that, you know, that they feel that he killed Lacey Peterson because he wanted to mm -hmm. start anew, you know, and he didn't want divorced husband father of a you know a child to be part of that script and so he just wanted to start anew and so he so that was a motive for him to kill you know Lacey and to kill his his unborn son Connor and in this case I wonder because we really I mean this was so long ago right I mean we were freshmen in college so we don't have the same technology as far as Facebook or texts or anything like that. And I'm just wondering what other information was out there as far as what his motive was. Was it that he had an affair? You know, was it that he had another woman? Was it that he, you know, simply didn't want to be a father? What, you know, what motivated this awful, you know, horrific act? Well, there are a couple hearsay type reasons floating around. Um, 
he does while he's in the hospital, he makes calls to a female employee of the first store. And it was suspected that uh, he was trying to either start a relationship with her or continue relationship. There's not a lot of evidence, though, and it is pretty normal to call a colleague when you're in the hospital. So that's unknown. But um, another. And she and she never I don't know if she was ever interviewed and she never said, you know, that we had there was some flirtatious um, behavior. And, and I was, you know, I got the sense that he was interested in me. We don't have any of that kind of information. Uh, certainly nothing documented. I don't know if she actually made a statement, but there's no I'm sure the police also would have investigated like you know, what kind of relationship was there outside of his hospital stay? And they, I don't think they could get anything. I don't know if she actually denied it, but it, it kind of fell apart as a motive. Um, now, there is some other story. I don't know who would have said this, but that he did not want to have a child until he had achieved his own career success and he wanted to open a restaurant. And he I don't like I said, I don't know who said this, so we don't know how true it is, but that he wanted to be more financially uh, in charge before they had a baby. But that seems very feeble reason to want to kill a child. Right. I mean, it's it's just a mind boggling thing that somebody could by all outside appearances. But I guess that's the makings of a sociopath. Right. Like, it, you know, they they sort of carry on just like we do. You know, they they get their coffee at Dunkin Donuts. They put gas in their car. They have normal, intelligent conversation by all appearances. Yeah, maybe even normal. they have an ambition one of day, starting a restaurant. You know, that could be a real thing. But Right. And everything seems normal about them. You would never think that they could do something. Then all of a sudden, it's scary to think that you could have a sociopath in your circle or nearby or and just not know that that person is capable of such cruelty. You know, well, yeah. And an interesting thing about this circumstance, too, unlike Scott Peterson, is that their baby, who was a boy and they named Christopher, was delivered. He was two months premature, but he was delivered when uh, Carol was in the hospital and he lived for 17 days. So I don't know, not being a doctor, if that means anything, but it sounds to me as though he might have been viable. Like you wonder if that had happened today. Two months premature is not that uncommon for a baby to live. Uh, so I don't know that today that baby might have lived. Might have. Absolutely. You know, different times we have more, more, you know, advancements and medicine and all kinds of stuff. So, but it, it's just, it is just amazing to me that someone would go to those lengths instead of just saying, I'm going to get a divorce. I don't want to be married. I don't, you know, I, I guess that it's just amazing to me that that label of being a divorcee, right. of being a, you know, a father before my time, that those things would weigh so heavily and that somebody would think that it would be okay to take someone's life as a result of, of their selfish impulses or desires. It's It's just amazing to me that somebody would be so cruel. Yeah. And the psychopath aspect comes into play when you think of what's going to happen after. So let's say he successfully does this and he pins the crime on someone else and he's able to go on. So he's able to kill his wife and unborn son and just open a restaurant. Like all's good. Like it's hard to imagine that anybody could carry on after that, even if you had the initial anger, right. That you could, you could conceive like, Oh yeah. In the future, It'll be great. I'll just I'll get past this and I'll I'll start on my path. Right. It's just a, a sad story. But then there's also the racial tension. Right. I mean, 
and what that's super sad already. But the reason that Marky Mark includes it in his song is not just that it was a husband killing a wife and son. It's that um, Boston went crazy after this. There was there were calls to reinstate the death penalty just for this crime. That's crazy. And Mm -hmm. what I didn't know at the time, because it probably was not reported, is that in the Mission Hill area, the police activity was intense. There's uh, a guy quoted in a uh, Washington Post report uh, who says that the first few days after the crime, African-American men were lined up on street corners with their pants pulled down as officers searched their trousers and underwear for drugs, guns, or any excuse to arrest them. Two weeks later, a group oh, of know. African-American men, 30 men, young to middle-aged, were lying on the ground, stripped naked, their arms handcuffed behind their backs. Groups of women were gathering around the handcuffed group to protest what the police were doing as they continued to round up and haul away more men. Right. And there was a lot more freedom back then to just do that. I think there would be a lot of hesitation to act this way now. Um, but certainly, you know, that that is humiliating behavior. It's a violation, I think, of their civil, you know, rights. Um, you know, what 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 right do you have to make me, you know, pull down my pants and to search me? What what grounds, you know, what right do you have to do that? I mean, these, this would be like probably a law. What grounds and what good you know? does it even do? Like, let's say you, I'm not obviously not suggesting that this is a good strategy, but let's say you uh, strong arm these 30 men and you strip search them and you find that one of them has a gun. So what? It doesn't mean he did anything. Like you can have a legal gun, like or, or even he has drugs. Maybe he's doing something illegal. It doesn't really correlate to the crime that was committed. It's just I could I could almost see more if you if you knew like the person who did this had a tattoo and we're going to look for that tattoo on everyone. You know, no bad idea, but at least it would correlate to the crime. Right, and it was just a way to intimidate the entire neighborhood and to force right. somebody to talk. You know, and it and it's completely you know, a, a it's a, a complete violation. You know, I mean, I would hate for, I mean, imagine if, if that happened here in the town of Salem and all of a sudden they're like stopping ev- everybody and, and, you know, and subjecting them to some, you know, humiliating behavior, you know, you can't do that. You've got to have, you know, some kind of, you know, rightful cause to like want to talk to me or search me, you know, so it, it's just amazing that that happened in the way that it did. But it was also different times. And I think, you know, we've I'd like to think that there's been progress, although, you know, we've had, you know, a lot of racially motivated incidents over the years. But I mean, I I think things are different now. I don't think it would go down quite in the same way as it did. back This strategy of um, stop and frisk, that's what it was called, was I won't say common, but was kind of allowed in certain situations. It was considered called for in certain extreme situations for police work at the time, but um, it's not anymore that I know of. And Mayor Bloomberg of New York uh, actually apologized for having used it early in his tenure. Yeah. I mean, it's and it's happening to certain groups, right? So it's not happening to in a suburban neighborhood, you know, that is mostly, you know, inhabited by white white citizens it's it's you know it's happening to black folk or or it could happen to latino folk and and so you know these are things that 
you know, we as a, as a society, we, we've got to improve upon. Um, and I think we have. I think we have. But there's still more work to be done. Well, and I have to say, at the time, I was very confused because I did not hear any of that activity that was going on, whether it was on the news and I missed it or it wasn't reported because, you know, the police were kind of ashamed of what they were doing. I don't know. But that part I did remember. I mean, I think for me, I had to see it in detail to really get the... um importance of it. So at the time, what I thought was, all right, so this guy is shot himself. It's reasonable for the police to conclude that he was a victim of a carjacking. It's not obvious that he did it. And he says it was a black man. So they're searching a neighborhood where there are black men, like around the area. So to me, I was like, okay, Charles Stewart is a racist, but how are the police racist in this situation? And that's because I didn't grasp the extent of the stop and frisk situation that was going on. It just, I didn't hear those details or I wasn't listening closely enough. And it's interesting that he could, he could live with a a black man getting arrested and convicted, but you know, you know, he didn't say a white man, you know, who was bald. And, you know, it's interesting that he felt that that would make his story more credible and that at some level that he was right. comfortable with somebody right. being convicted. But yeah, he comes very close. He I comes he would very have. close to getting away with it. Um, although he he is behaving he would, a little suspiciously. When he gets out of the hospital in December, he immediately goes out and pays, pays cash for a new car, Nissan Maxima. So I I wouldn't be surprised if the police raised an eyebrow at that and thought, you know, did he get an insurance settlement? Where's he getting this from? That seems like a little bit odd behavior for somebody who is just getting back back to life, their life, you know? Right. Like he was like ready to move forward. And so his behavior was highly suspicious and consistent with other cases where we see men sort of moving on and doing things that don't don't seem to jive with somebody who's a grieving, you know, husband or partner. It is interesting. Now, what I don't recall about this case is when the police started to suspect Charles. Well, here's what's going on. In in November, they're doing those terrible searches in the Mission Hill area. They initially arrest a guy on suspicion. Um, they, they do not stick with him. They do not charge him. They move on to another man called Willie Bennett, and they present him to Charles in a lineup. You know how they do with the group of men and the victim is asked to identify the person that um, attacked them. And in fact, Charles identified, God knows how, Willie Bennett um, in the lineup. So the police had their suspect. They put him in a lineup and Charles fingers him. I don't know how he picked the right guy, picked the guy the police thought, but he does. Um, And that's late December, 89, and after Christmas. And then, boy, do things happen fast. January 3rd, Charles' brother Matthew tells the police that Charles is the real murderer and that Matthew was an accomplice after the fact. He says that uh, Charles told him that he was committing an insurance fraud. He did not tell him that he was, according to Matthew, that he was going to uh, kill his wife. And he has his brother dispose of some um, valuables like Carol's purse and jewelry, maybe has him get rid of those so that it appears they've actually been robbed. Yeah. Wow. So Matthew, you know, that that's the thing like <laughs> um 
if not for somebody being involved, he could have almost gotten away. Yeah, it seems like he really would have because the police so put someone police, forward. He says, the police yep, believed that's him. him. Now, who knows? They still have, to have a trial. I don't, you know, they're not going to have a lot of evidence because it's not the guy. So maybe that wouldn't have worked. But uh, Charles wouldn't have been implicated. Right. If not for the brother. Right. So I have a lot of respect for the brother. I mean, granted, he's been holding on to this information for a few months, but it's hard to rat on a family member. So I, I respect that he did that. And he went to jail for a period of time. Well, yeah. And what's sad, too, is that he tells the police this. The police make it public, probably to scare Charles or, you know, provoke some reaction from Charles. And when they make it public, Carol's father collapses from a heart attack. Yes, I, I, I actually heard that. I remember that now from my from reading on the subject. What a sad story. What a sad situation. I know. So you can tell. And why would he suspect? You know, again, the guy, Charles, was shot in such a way that he sustained serious injury. So you would not necessarily think there's nothing necessarily suspicious about this. But right. He is uh, made shockingly aware of that when Matthew comes forward. That's January 3rd. January 4, Charles drives that new car to the Tobin Bridge, leaves it on the Tobin Bridge and jumps to his death. So within 24 hours of his brother squealing, revealing the the mm-hmm. big secret. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a it's an awful story. I uh, I mean, him jumping to his death doesn't bring me too much sadness, but certainly the fact that he killed his wife and, you know, a woman who was gifted, intelligent, had a whole life to lead, was was pregnant, was probably happy about yeah, being a I'm mom. Sure she was. Just for, for, him to, for him to destroy all that over what? Over money, apparently over money, you know, or some kind of, you know, feeling right. like he's less than. So let me start over and. She's not part of the equation and I can just be, I don't know, whatever he thought in his head. It's just really, really sad. You know, we hear about it over and over again. It's either domestic violence, which is recurrent. You know, these are uh, it's a, there's a recurrent pattern of verbal and physical abuse. And or there could just be these kind of instances where, you know, certain men with sociopathic tendencies decide that they're going to just erase their life, you know, erase their partner from from this earth and it's um it's it's how how does this happen you know as a society how does it i know to this level but uh there is a good part of the story you know the only good part is that they did start a fund in her name correct in order to help kids who were interested in pursuing college very from the mission hill neighborhood where where the where where he said that the you know where he said he was attacked that she was yeah very quickly her family creates the carol demady stewart fund which i wouldn't have even put stewart in that title if i were them i would have just called it the carol demady fund but uh to benefit students from who attend any college and bc students uh rallied in support of that they held some fundraisers um like a battle of the bands her family also establishes a scholarship at suffolk law school family and friends and BC itself, uh, in May, announces a uh, May of '90 rather announces a Carol DeMady scholarship, where they give preference to applicants from Mission Hill. That's awesome. So a number of efforts to 
right the wrong, at least, of the police response and, tri- and make a tribute to a fine BC to alum. To Carol, an outstanding mm-hmm. BC alum. Just how does this happen? And how does someone like Carol, who's that smart, fall for this person who, you know, is pretty clearly pretending on some levels about his own past and couldn't have seemed 100%. You know, there must have been things that she was ignoring. Yeah, I think that it's if we're just skimming the surface and if he's just out and about at a party, it's right. hard to to figure out that he's a sociopath. But if you're living with somebody day in and day out and, you know, you're sleeping right beside them and you know exactly what they do and they don't do, how how is it that you would not see something that would be disturbing to you or make you question, you know, um, I'm not going to blame the no, victim. No, definitely <laughs> Sounds not. like I'm kind of judging her a little bit here, and I don't, I don't want to No, love is just, blind, but that's the part. Love we is blind. We have a hard and, time accepting. And the thing is, just like a lot of people, you know, you, you want to see the best in everybody, and you don't, you know, if they appear to be a certain way, you don't think that they could be capable of mm-hmm. such cruelty. A sad footnote, you mentioned the brother did plead guilty to obstruction of justice and insurance fraud. I guess there was some insurance fraud probably to do with, you know, the money he had to buy that new car, but it wasn't large. It wasn't a large um, provable component. Anyway, it was, there was, there was speculation about massive uh, life insurance, but it just didn't seem to be there. So he pled guilty. So it was a small, so he did all of this for, for a small. Well, if you consider though that, I mean, it's not a better motive, but what is a good motive? If this real motive was more so, I don't want a child now. I want to achieve my dreams first. Then that's different, you know. It's just amazing that somebody would. This is somebody who intellectually can figure things out, and it's like in their mind they did this deductive reasoning that it was that it had to be this way, that they're going to have to die, and it's just yeah, amazing two, to me that basically could ha- two people have to way. die: the wife and the baby. And then he ruins the life of his brother as well because he goes to jail for five years. And in 2011, he was found dead in a homeless shelter. You have to believe that this tragedy, you know, stunted his development. I don't know how old he was at the time, but these are pretty young people, so he could have been early mm-hmm. 20s. So we just wanted to pay tribute to Carol DeMady, alum of BC, who was uh, related in some small way, some sad way to an Arsenio episode, but uh, certainly she's not too far from what we knew uh, in our experience, a young woman first in her family, perhaps to attend college and achieving and, and starting out in her life and, you know, becoming a, a working woman when that was just a, kind of a new thing. And then was victim to a terrible scheme. Yeah, it's it's awful, and and um, and all we can say is, what can we learn right. from it? What can we learn as a society? How do we spot these kind of signs? How how can we educate our the public about about this issue? You know, which is violence against women. It's just you know, it's 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 rampant. It happens all the time. Yeah, it's the reason why now. And, I, I don't uh, know. You've probably noticed this. Whenever you go to the doctor, what's the question they ask you? Do you feel safe at home? I don't know. You know what? I don't think they've ever asked me that. They've asked me that with Jay there. I was like, well, he's right here. So (laughs) even if I didn't feel safe, I don't think I'm going to say something right now. (laughs) 
But I mean, the domestic violence is prevalent and I don't want to digress to that, but it just, it all kind of ties in just the, uh, yeah. I mean, if someone had asked her that, maybe she didn't feel safe at home, you know, who knows? Yeah. I mean, we don't know. That's the thing. And women are not, you know, this involves a whole community, friends and family. And if it's your husband, you want him to be seen Mm -hmm. in the best light. So women are probably, a lot of women are probably not as comfortable just you know, revealing that. Well, that's why I think it's kind of good to say all is not well. I'm not asking you. Maybe you look more in control than me. I don't know. But I think it's good that they ask me so frequently (laughs) because if that were the case, one of those times might be the time that I wanted to say it. You know what I mean? Like if you just ask someone once, it might be the wrong moment. But maybe something happened the day before that makes you really want to tell someone. Right. As long as there's awareness there's links, there's resources, at least, you mm-hmm. know, it's there. If if the person who's in, a, in, an, in an abusive relationship or an unsafe relationship needs to reach out, they know where, where to right. go. When they're ready, exactly. to, you know. Are you en route to the battery suspect 318 East 3rd Street? For repeat? All right, so um, we're talking about the episode of Arsenio from December 91 that contains Marky Mark, Cindy Crawford, and Kevin Pollock. And first off, Marky Mark, what did you want to say about him? Marky Mark, well, I I like the performance. I think he looked adorable. I mean, I I've always had a little bit of a crush on Marky Mark. He's one of the well, Mark Wahlberg now. Um, he's one of those celebrities that I've always, you know, thought, ooh, if I were in Hollywood, I'd be interested in dating Mark Wahlberg, you know. <laughs> um, but I I mean, I liked his acting, and you know, I you know, but I didn't really delve into his past all that much. Until, you know, here we are <laughs> until we're like watching the show with Marky Mark back in the day. And I'm thinking, let me look, do a little research on Mark. I know he's a, you know, Boston guy and I knew he grew up in Dorchester. So that's always interesting to me. It's like, oh, he's a local guy. He's our guy, you know. Um, and I was I knew that he was not like an angel way back in the day when he was like 14, 15 but I didn't realize that he had actual like criminal charges against him that were very serious. Um, yeah, I think he actually went to jail. Yeah, he he I think was very lucky as far as jail time because he assaulted a guy so badly that he was actually charged with attempted murder. Wow. And he pleaded guilty to a lesser charge. They gave him they sentenced him to two years and he ended up only serving 45 days of the time. At the time, he was only 16. So that's probably why he, you know, things worked out a little bit better for him. But uh, he is interesting, you know, like in before that, when he was about 15, he was charged with some kind of civil lawsuit or something because he and and a bunch of other people were like, uh, you know, saying these racial slurs against a group of fourth graders. You know, these were black, you know, young kids and he was calling them really derogatory names and they were throwing rocks. And so he's had quite a quite a past there. 
I, I do think, I believe that he definitely feels bad about it. He has said so publicly. And so I'm willing to say, hey, you know, he evolved from that. He learned from that. He realizes that he, you know, it, you know, can't be a racist. And I don't believe nowadays, you know, I don't believe now he is. So I, I do think he evolved from that. But he's had kind of a rocky, you know, rocky past. And even as late as 1992, he had some kind of criminal stuff happening where he uh, got involved in a really bad fight, you know, so he's kind of like he's got that little bit of a dark side. I guess we all do, but he's interesting that way. Yeah, I mean, if if in fact all that stuff ended by the time he was, you know, 20. Yes. Then I think it's a good example of someone who has a, a rough upbringing, maybe or uh, bad influences as a kid and then straightens out. Yeah. And I'm not really sure why, you know, like it doesn't sound like anybody else in his family had these type of issues. Oh, actually, I do kind of know why he did admit to being addicted to cocaine and other substances from a really young age, um, wow. from the age of 13. So that may have influenced a lot of this behavior, too. You know, although I don't know that I've heard him publicly talk about whether that was the real reason he acted this way or, you know, even so, like you're right, Jamie. I mean, it just shows that somebody can evolve and become a different person because we all have the capacity for it. And he's the, you know, really good example of it. He's an interesting person. But anyway, as far as his performance, I thought he was adorable. Back in the day, I always thought he was really cute. And, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was, I mean, he was a decent rapper. He was never gonna, I, I think he was wise to go from music to acting because I don't think music was gonna last for the long term. Yeah, when I watched the performance, I thought, well, it's an interesting rap. Like I picked up the Charles Stewart reference and that was anyway interesting to me, but I didn't think his skills were anything great. Yeah. I mean, they, he was just okay. I mean, the, the music at the time was good enough. I mean, I liked him. I thought he was cute and, you know, at the time, but it, it wasn't going to have any real longevity. So he was smart no. to like, and it's funny because he and his brothers have all, like a couple of other brothers have been Robert and uh, I think it's Robert and Donnie Wahlberg have also gotten into the acting scene. So it's they've been, you know, he's been the most successful, but his other brothers have also had some success with acting. I hope that Donnie can live on the uh, proceeds of New Kids on the Block because they were huge. Yeah, yeah. I had forgotten about New Kids on the Block. <laughs> I mean, they were kind of for folks a little younger than we were, I think. They were a teeny bopper sort of band, but very popular. Yeah, they were. They were. And, and Marky Mark was in that for a hot minute, but I could see how he didn't fit with their image. They were really like fresh faced young kids. Yeah. Mark Mark definitely was the I don't know if he was the black sheep at the time, but he's the only one I've heard about having these type of issues with like assaults and anger and, you know, the drug stuff. I mean, maybe maybe there were other family members who also dealt with this, but he's the only one that I'm aware of that. Uh, yeah, I know. Many he issues. seems to have gone gone off the rails when the others didn't. Yeah. But, the, but yeah, he's been super successful since then in acting. And I think he, he's a great you know, I think he's a very decent actor. I really liked his role in boogie nights but i read that he felt really bad about that because he has a pretty good solid religious upbringing and that influenced him later in life and he actually asked for a pardon like from the cardinal from some type of cardinal or i don't know who was for that movie for his for playing a porn actor in boogie nights Wow. He felt bad about no, that. No, he shouldn't do that. That's a good movie, and he's just acting. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I was surprised to see that he had done that. He must feel this, that struggle with him, I think, internally in terms of, you know, his religious convictions and how he, you know, 
how to lead a Christian life or something. I, I guess it's some kind of internal struggle there. But I was surprised to read that. Yeah. But yeah, no, it was it's good to see people back in the day. And um, yeah, I think he I still think he's a hottie. Well, in this uh, time period, he has, I think, the first uh, definition of six pack abs. Yeah. <laughs> which he loves to show. He manages to show them all the time. Yeah. I can't say uh, it wasn't pleasing to my eye, but um, <laughs> <laughs> like I said, he's one of those that, you know, when I go down the list of, you know, there's Javier Bardem, the, the uh, actor from Spain, I think, who's Penelope Cruz's husband, who I think is really hot. And it's Mark Wahlberg. And I don't know, there's only a handful, you know, and he's on that list. <laughs> Didn't you have a, um, speaking of current day, a less than stellar experience at his restaurant venture? Oh, God, I feel bad having <laughs> to mention this, but oh, well, <laughs> because I knew that his brother and that he was involved with this restaurant. And I, I believe the restaurant is called, oh, geez, I might have this wrong. I, you're not you're not talking about Wahlburgers, are you? No, I don't think it's Wahlburgers. They do have a Wahlburgers in that plaza where I went, which was in Framingham, Mass. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a kind of like an upscale place. And it's, and, it, Maybe he... and it's owned by his brother, whose name I'm forgetting at the moment, but he's the brother who's very much into restaurants. As a matter of fact, he was part of a reality show, which I don't know if it's yeah. still on. So he's the guy who's the cook and really like into the restaurant thing. I met him, actually. Uh, we went there and, you know, the, the appetizers were, were great. But when we got to the mail, main course, Wilmer did not like it. And I didn't, I wasn't overly thrilled with it either. It was, um, oh, geez, risotto and duck. And I thought I wanted to be different. And I thought, oh, this, you know, the way that it was, the description really kind of drew me in. And then, but unfortunately, my palate didn't um, really appreciate the dish too much. I'll just say me, Natalie Rios, didn't really like it. Maybe somebody else right. would have. Um, but I felt bad because, you know, he came around. He's a really nice guy. He he walks around and stuff and asks people like, you know, how how do you like your dinner? How do you, how you, you know, and I said that I really enjoyed my dinner and, and Wilmer, <laughs> I lied and Wilmer didn't say anything. And I wonder if, you know, I think I was lucky that I even got to meet him. I think that because of the buzz with the reality shows, he probably doesn't make too many appearances anymore. You mean the brother, right? The not brother, Marky not Marky Mark. Yeah. Correct. I think his name is Paul. Yes, I think that's right. But even though like they've got a bit of fame going on, so I don't know that he would be out. And, no, I agree. You know, I agree. he might be. He might be. It's not like people are going to like chase him down at the mall or something like that. So he might be out there. But it was kind of a unique experience to have him come out. And I'm like, and I knew exactly who he was because I had seen him on TV. Um, and uh, and I just said, yeah, no, it's it's good. <laughs> <laughs> so I take it your poor dining experience did not influence your crush on Marky Mark. It didn't. No. <laughs> It never will, really. He's, I, I think he's very attractive, you know? S- different strokes for different folks, I guess. I, I, I've always had something. I, I'm sure I'm not alone in my... No, you're not. He definitely has energy that's attractive. Yeah. I, I guess I like the bad boy thing. Yeah. So also on this episode, we have um, Cindy Crawford. Yeah. Who had just gotten married. Yeah. That was an interesting interview. What did you think of it? Well... It's really, you know, because, you know, again, we have the crystal ball thing, right? So we know what's going to happen. We know that Cindy Crawford, well, Cindy Crawford 
was recently married to Richard Gere. She seemed really, ha- you know, happy. She said it was like a spontaneous thing that they had already, you know, that they had been talking about marriage for years and that she had been ready for a while now for the big marriage step and that he was somewhat, you know, like reluctant. Like and she actually, if I remember correctly, I think she said he caved in, uh, yep, which, kind, she did. which, which kind of surprised me. And so, you know, and then I don't know, it just kind of made me a little sad because she was like, you know, we were happy to do it. You know, we, it wasn't a big thing. We got married quickly in Las Vegas. And then we went to Denny's afterwards, like no big deal. And, you know, and she thought like, this is a solid relationship. And she had no idea that, the, you know, the relationship was going to only last four years. And I wonder what was behind, you know, their separation. Like, I, I wonder what it was. And it's interesting because he's much older than she is. She, he's like 16 years older than her. And yet, yeah, I was wondering that because she today still looks awesome and yeah. he looks a little older. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's he she, he was significantly older and she was so beautiful and seems like a smart, nice, you know, balanced girl. Like, why couldn't you make that work? You know? So, yeah. And why did she have to pressure you? I don't know. I felt like, right. Don't pressure somebody, even if it's Richard Gere, like you're better than that. You don't have right. to force him to do this. You're Cindy Crawford. <laughs> you can have any man yeah. you want, but I understand that's not what it's about. And she felt a real connection with him, but he was, just, he's an interesting cat. I mean, I guess he, you know, it's hard for some men to, no matter how beautiful their woman is, that it's just hard for them to, you know, settle down. Cause for her to say it that way, it's like he came. Like, oh, that doesn't sound like he was. I, I wouldn't want to doesn't describe sound it that like way. The way I want to describe my right, husband. I would be somewhat embarrassed to say like, no, I, not somewhat. I would be embarrassed to say like my husband caved in, like like he didn't want to marry me. Like I don't know, I wouldn't want to say it. Yeah, and it wasn't nice for her because he didn't have a ring. She said she made rings out of tin foil. Right. It's like, come on, and, and you have money. She had been sick that week, and you know, I don't know. I just felt like. That's not how that should go. No, poor thing. You know, she's a really smart kid. She she did seem very, what can I say, put together and it reminded me that she did that House of Style on MTV and was very good at hosting those short clips. And not all models would be great at that. No, but you know, she's... I think she does other business ventures afterwards, although right now it's not coming to I mean, I've seen her do other stuff like infomercials for different products and things like that. So I'm sure she's been really wise about her business ventures. But I do know that she was a valedictorian in high school. She was a va- oh. she was the valedictorian in high school and she got like like a scholarship to study chemical engineering, but decided to stick wow. with modeling and with, you know, the entertainment industry. So this is a, one smart, one smart lady for sure. Talk about the complete package. Richard Gere blew it. I know. It's like, what were you looking for? You know? Right. But he, I think that he's, I don't know if he's still married now, but he's had other, after they got divorced in like, I think it was 1995 or something. He, I think got married two more times or something, I I believe. So. And she got married and is still married. And is still married, which doesn't surprise me. She looks like, Hey, I just want to be married. I'm a nice girl. I want to have kids, you know, maybe it was the kid thing. Maybe he didn't want to have kids. Could be. Were He's older. Yeah, exactly. Another guest on this episode is Kevin Pollack, who I was surprised was in A Few Good Men. First of all, can I just say, this is part in my ignorance here. I only know him from A Few Good Men. When he came out with oh. his naval cop, like, oh, there's there's a guy from A Few Good Men. I didn't realize he was such a talented comedian. And I was glad that he did that little comedy routine there for a few minutes. So I could mm-hmm. really appreciate all the different impersonations that he does. He's really talented. 
But I didn't know him before. I mean, that's it. That's the only association I have is a few good men. I think that was a kind of a weird casting because I only knew him as a comedian. And then he's in this blockbuster movie. I know. I'm not sure what else he was in. I mean, he's perfectly capable, but seems like more of a, in my mind, more of a comedian in terms of his career. How funny. Like, it's it, it's like, wow, what I didn't know. And he's so, you can see that he's really talented. And when he said, oh, you know, I'm not used to this cut. I'm like, uh, boo-boo, that's the cut that you want to have. <laughs> Because he looks, it looks so nice because the cut, I guess they showed a little clip of him with his other hair. That wasn't working for me. I'm like, keep the navel cut, Kevin Pollack. <laughs> I'm like, he looks handsome that way. Nice and clean. I'm like, so. Yeah, I agree. And you know what was interesting about his stand up too? He, he has an interview and then he does stand up, which I guess I understand because they want to make sure that he can get in this plug for a few good men. So they do that first. And then he does some stand up. And that routine was funny. Unlike all of the other comics that we see on Arsenio, his comedy translated. It did. And he seemed really comfortable. Like you can tell he's a pro. Yeah. You know, I was like, this guy like, and I don't know if it was like planned, like that he was going to get up and do it because it looked natural. Like, hey, do you want to just, but I'm sure it was planned. I'm sure he was like, hey, you know, I'm going to ask you to get up and do a few you know, do a little comedy. I'm sure he must have known. But uh, I would say it would be um, planned as a possibility. So I think on these shows, they never know if they're going to run over or under. Right. So they, they they say, you know, depending how everything else goes, other acts, you know, play out and what, how much time they take up. Yeah, I um I enjoyed watching him. And it was funny again to see not not funny, but like interesting to see him describe the movie and to know that it's going to be such a big hit. I mean, re- honestly, like if you didn't know Kevin Pollack from anything else, you would. I mean, it's hard to not recognize him from that movie. Natalie's major at Boston College was psychology. It comes in handy during our next episode. But I was unaware that she also minored in Madonna studies. Up next, check out her encyclopedic knowledge. I mean, is there anything else, anything greater than Madonna? (laughs) Is there? (laughs) So which episode should we discuss first? Uh, The first one chronologically is when is the one we watched on the Internet when she's on promoting Dick Tracy. Yeah, that was a huge year for her because not only was she on there promoting Dick Tracy, but she was getting ready to go on the Blonde Ambition Tour, which is a great concert, which I've watched maybe, oh, I don't know, 10 times or more. Um, It's a great concert. It involves all kinds of great dance routines and, you know, religious imagery and artistic stuff. And it's wild. It's a great experience. So anyway, she was on the verge of doing the Blonde Ambition Tour and she had just finished the Vogue video, which was really hot. It was very, you know, caused a lot of stir. And she was really like on top of the world right there and then. And she was dating dating Warren Warren Beatty. Beatty, And he's in... um, Truth or Dare. Yep. Yeah. And he's in that. So I figure that since he's in that she must have been producing that at the same time um because she didn't she didn't date him forever yeah no she didn't i don't know how long they dated was it for a year or so i have no idea but that was clearly never gonna last but i think that she was no but it lasted longer than you might think i think it lasted longer than one might think because madonna's a really smart person despite her sort of um jokey or sarcastic or whatever you want to say you know that whole persona she puts out there um, is just kind of a front. I think she's a really, really smart person. And I think Warren gravitates to, to smart people. He's a smart guy himself.
itself. And I think that that kept it interesting for a while. Plus, she's very beautiful and he's a from her perspective, he's a hot older man and very successful. So there's a lot to keep them interested in each other for a period of time, but not a lot to keep it, you know, to make it last forever. And they show a, a clip from the movie. They Arsenio says it's a rough cut because it's not the movie's still in production. And I know I probably stand alone on this, but I actually think she's a pretty good actress. She is. I think that back in the day, she was harshly judged be- yeah. because people didn't want her to succeed as an actress. They already sort of resented the fact that she was succeeding as such a like a music. Some a lot of people didn't think that she should succeed as a music artist. So I think I think they that they some they wanted to take her down a peg. But when whenever you watch anything that Madonna's in, she has a star the star quality. She has charisma and she does pull it off. And she in that yeah. in that movie, she was that sexy sultry you know woman who's with like a gangster like she 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 just in that 30 second clip that you saw she totally exuded that you know absolutely and her face her beauty she had it i think that she wasn't lucky enough to get the right roles she did definitely prove it in evita that she had the chops to do you know to do something more i love evita she did a great job her vocals were great. Yet again, people were just quick to dash her, you know, like, oh, well, she's not like so-and-so on Broadway. Well, no. Uh, don't ask Don't ask Patty Lupone how she did. Patty Lupone right. can't stand her. Well, there you go. I mean, I think it's jealousy, you know? I mean, granted, I mean, I, I don't think that, the, I mean, I think that people feel like, oh, if you're so successful, then you need to be the best singer that ever lived. That's not how this works. People put forward their art and it's successful because you can appreciate their art. They're not saying I'm the best artist that ever lived. And because of that, I deserve to have the most success. It doesn't work that way. People put forward their art and it's either it, it either reaches a mass audience or it doesn't. And Madonna was able to reach a mass audience and people can't wrap their head around that. You know, I know. I mean, it's not like she didn't work. I mean, she really worked she, hard. She made her image. She did her. I don't know if she did her own choreography, but she was a legit dancer. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we all know that she uh, well, some some people might not. But I mean, that was her first real thing was dancing. She studied dance. She, I, I want to say she studied. Yes, it was ballet. And then maybe she evolved and she dipped into other types of dance. I'm not sure. But she did that as at a young age. And then, you know, got a scholarship, a dance scholarship to Michigan, but she got bored. She wanted to be a star. So she packed up, you know, dropped out of college and went to New York. When she was in New York, she would take classes there. She would keep that up. She did try to get dance jobs, but she felt like it wasn't going to really go anywhere. That's why she switched her focus to music and eventually, Mm -hmm. you know, met a boyfriend. The boyfriend taught her how to, you know, play the guitar, taught her how to write songs. But you don't like you have to have the talent to actually learn those things. Yeah. Nobody's teaching me to do that. Right. It's not happening. Exactly. Like you have to have the ability. She had a good voice. You know, she got encouragement and she learned how to become an artist, you know, and it's like the fact that people just can't sort of accept that, you know, that, that she deserved to be successful is is crazy. Anyway, I mean, at, at the time of this interview, she well, the interview was interesting because it's, it's you know, in the 1990 interview, again, it's the same kind of thing with Arsenio that kind of like uh, they're teasing each other. They're getting into each other's love life business. It was like they have yeah. a, they have an interesting rapport. Yeah. She has a whole big gimmick in this one that she brought him a, a ring, which is like a big yeah. gold ring. 
She calls it a booby prize because she feels bad for him that apparently word on the street is that he lost Paula Abdul to John Stamos. Yes. Yes. And, and he, I don't know, Arsenio just kind of kept laughing about that. I thought, I was like, uh, are you going to be okay? <laughs> yeah, I know. She was going deep. Yeah. But then, you know, he would always, he was also asking her questions about Warren and, you know, why do you, you know, what makes Warren so different? And, and her response was interesting because, you know, basically she likes Warren for different reasons. But one of the main things is, you know, he's not threatened by, by my success. He's, uh, you know, very sure of himself, you know, and that's attractive. Yeah, comfortable with himself. Right. She says, but yeah, it was, yeah, that's an attractive quality. It is. It is. But yeah, I mean, it was mostly just sort of, her sort of teasing, you know, it was kind of like playful banter the whole time, really, between her and Arsenio, you know, and then he showed the yeah, clip. He, and- uh, of note, he uh, asks her if she's in a homosexual relationship with Sandra Bernhard. Yeah. And, and, and uh, well, he mentions that and then he's like, you know, well, it was more like joking, right? Cause, uh, because he says, I know that you're just friends, but people think that you might have. Well, because they played it up, the two of them. Yeah, they It's not did. like people just made it up. Yeah. I mean, it's quite possible that something did happen between the two of them because Madonna's not really shy about highlighting the fact that she has sexual fantasies with other women and she's put that right. in her work. Like with the Justify My Love video, you know, she incorporates a lot of that in there. And I, I want to say that in her sex book that came out in 1992, she also, you know, puts in a lot of imagery like that. So uh, it could have happened, but I think Madonna pretty much is into men. <laughs> yeah, an experiment is different from a relationship. Correct. That's right. But it's interesting with Madonna because she really likes comedians. She really, you know, her and Sandra yeah, are, and you know, Rosie. you know, really good friends and her and Rosie. So it's something there's something about I don't know if it's because these are bold women and they're funny and they're not afraid to get into people's stuff. I don't know what it is that 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 maybe Madonna's attracted to there. Well, it could be opposites, because one thing about Madonna, I would say, is she's not funny. She has a real hard edge, and she doesn't allow herself to be goofy often. Yeah. I mean, she likes to laugh. She does. Yeah, but she's not funny. Like, she's more like like snarky and... Um, yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if it's a defense mechanism, you know, if she feels like she has to be that way to protect herself, because she's dealing with the media and the media can twist your words or, you know, or the media is not your friend. I don't know if it's, if she has some kind of opinion about the press that, you know, because she has that same attitude every time you watch her, really, except for maybe Oprah was the only time that I didn't see that. But other than that, if it's like a male interviewer, I find that she's very sort of either flirty or snarky or I don't know. There's a certain persona that she's uh, exuding during those interviews. And it's always the same. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, she's the number one performer when it comes to creating her own image and evolving it over the years. So I had the feeling that, you know, this was the image she was going to put out there. Correct. And she stuck to it. Yeah, I think she feels like this works, you know, like I want to be different. I want to be sort of like, you know, provoke, not provoke people, but make people feel like, I don't know, like I'm different from the, basically that she's different from the norm. That's what she wants. And that yeah. she's sexy and that she's bold and she's not afraid to say what somebody else wouldn't say, you know? Right. Just another small thing I noted is that color aside, she's rocking my hairstyle from 1990, <laughs> which is yeah. a, a short curly bob. <laughs> yep. It looked great. <laughs> I know. I remember I, I, thought, I remember okay. your hairdo from back then. I loved it. Yeah. 
You would always really kind of like play with the blonde stuff too. Like I did that too, but not this much. This was, in my opinion, a little too yellow. Yes. Oh, definitely. I mean, it looks great on her and everything, but it is, uh, yeah, it's, um, she played around a lot with that yellow. And I think that was just of the time too. I don't think she was the only one with that color. No. And again, it's kind of like her shocking people. Sometimes like it's yellow and sometimes it's, you know, black hair. It's like, right. You know, she keeps evolving. She keeps becoming something else in order to keep people interested. And she's the master at that. She is. What did you think? How would you compare uh, the way she is alone versus the way she is when she's with Rosie a couple years later? Hmm. Um, When she was with Rosie, I felt like her focus was more on I don't know. It, it was a little different. I felt like her focus was not on her and on what she needed. What she It was more so on her relationship with Rosie, like her being out there and joking. And I don't know. It felt like she was just at a friend's house or something. It didn't feel like she was there to even promote a movie. That's what I felt. Yeah. You know, it. and well, both of them were kind of, you know, informal, but, but clearly they were there to promote the movie. But I, I felt like she wanted to show them what her relationship with Rosie was like and then, you know, engender or, or, or uh, inspire enough interest in the movie based on the relationship she has with Rosie. I don't know. It was weird. Yeah. We should say the movie is a league of their own, own. which I love. I love that movie. I think it is a beautiful movie. It has comedy, drama, great lines. Oh, it's just, I love Tom Hanks character in there. A lot of the characters are really, really good. And it's, Penny Marshall, the late Penny Marshall, is yeah, one of her best movies. Yeah, people don't know, this is actually where uh, Tom Hanks says, there's no crying in baseball. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, great lines, heartfelt movie. It's like it has everything in it, really. It was a brilliant, brilliantly done movie. And, it, and women's empowerment, everything is uh, wrapped up into one. So and I thought, again, I thought that Madonna's performance in that was fine. She was good. Oh, yeah. You know, Rosie was also good. He, she was. Yeah, they both were. And so, yeah, I mean, the second interview with Rosie was, oh, what made me <laughs> uncomfortable during that interview with Rosie. And I don't know if what was going on there, but did you catch that Rosie was not out yet? I know. And Arsenio asked her two questions like, hey, you know, like, what do you look for in a guy? And, you know, and are you, you know, are you, I think he may have asked her if she was seeing someone um, or, but she, he said like a man, you know, and I'm like, uh, yeah. we all know that Rosie is lesbian. I know. Although I will say there was one point where I thought it was just awkward, but then another point, I'm pretty sure she knew what he was driving at because he asked her what she's looking for in a man. And it's all a setup to bring out Madonna's father. Yes. Yes, exactly. So she probably knows he's not really asking her those questions. He's just leading up to this right father. But she kind of like, let me just bear through that because I know what's coming after, you know, after. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And whenever like her, whenever Madonna's dad came out, her face completely changed. It was like she was back to being a little girl again. Like she was, she was. I, that, she was like, dad, you know, like she was like, now I have to be someone else. You know, now I, I can't, you know, you know, say the things that I was saying before. Or I don't know. I could just immediately see that. I could. I know what you're talking about. I didn't know if it was real. I thought maybe she was putting on that persona. Like, here's how I look in front of my dad. And she was kind of nervously fidgeting and stuff. It seemed to me, it seemed like maybe a little too much. It's interesting because I thought differently. And I'll tell you why. First, I... I identify with Madonna 
because Madonna, although I doubt that her father was as strict as my dad, but she always said that, you know, she came from a strict, pretty strict upbringing. So maybe that's what caused her to be kind of rebellious. And it was, you know, Catholic, Catholic upbringing. And so, um, and she went to Catholic schools, you know, during her early years. So I always felt like, you know, like because of that, I feel like there's a big level of respect there. Just like I have that, maybe I'm, maybe I'm projecting my stuff onto Madonna, but I'm thinking, oh, she feels what I feel like that struggle. Like we don't, we're not like really religious, but we grew up in, in, in this, a certain culture and we have respect for it and we don't want to disappoint anybody. And because the minute that he sat down, her, the minute that her father sat down and she's like, now I can't be bad. And I totally understood that because the, the way that I am probably not that I'm doing weird stuff all the time, but the way I'm, <laughs> I am out in the world is not the same as how I would be in front of dad. I'm not going to swear in front of dad. I'm not going to, you know, so I, I, yeah, I, there's an element. Let's just say I felt she was exaggerating that. Like I think is really there. And I understand that she works the media with an image. So she took that little kernel of, oh, my dad's here and, and blew it up. Yeah. No, I, I want to say that I want to say that I thought differently about that. Now, normally with her, she it's all about, you know, she is I feel like everything is premeditated, like how I'm going to act and how I'm going to be. And, you know, I do feel that with her. And um, but not in that moment. I could see her fate like like the color in her face changed like dad, like she was legitimately surprised, <laughs> you know. So I, I, I do think that that was a little bit different. And I was happy to see him. And it was interesting because our senior was like, you know, she's a really nice girl. He was telling the dad. But when she's out here in public, she acts different. And I believe that, that that's the case, that behind the scenes with her friends, she's different and that she feels that she needs to put on this protective persona for whatever reason. Yeah. Rosie said that a couple of times, yeah. too, that, you know. You want everyone to think that you're tough, but you're really not. Right. And I think I don't I mean, a lot of the times Madonna has said that um, the reason that she was so ambitious and that she sought fame and that she was relentless in her pursuit of it was because her mom died when she was little and that she always felt like she needed to reclaim what she lost. And that was part of it. I don't know if that's tr you know true or not. I, I think it probably is. I mean, she was very hungry for it. And she was very focused at a young age. She was like, this is what I want to do. And I'm going to go to New York and do it, you know. And so I think that probably that kind of loss could fuel that because you you're trying to make up for something that you don't have. Yeah, she she and Rosie say right away that that's why one reason why they became friends is that they both lost their mothers at a young age. Right. And I believe that that that's a, a true thing, that it's not like a played up thing that they're saying. And, and I don't know if they're friends today, but they were certainly friends for, you know, they were close for a while. I don't know if they still are. I think they're still friendly. Yeah. I don't know about BFFs. Right. They definitely seemed re like real friends in this clip. Yeah, definitely. Although I still prefer Natalie as my best friend, not oh, not Madonna. She <laughs> seems a little a little mean, a little hard to take. Yeah, even if it's an image. Well, you know, it's interesting. Michael Jackson is the only person I've heard. Oh, maybe other people have said stuff, but Michael Jackson revealed that that uh, Madonna that he had trouble with Madonna. And even though yeah. remember that he and Madonna famously went to like I think some awards show together and caused a stir because people were like, Ooh. yeah, I remember that. So, you know, so they had some kind of, you know, friendship for a bit, but Michael Jackson did say, you know, Madonna is not a nice person, you know? <laughs> and uh, so I don't know. I, I think a lot of things are true. I think that she is probably tough because she wants, you know, probably in her work life, she's tough and has been mean. 
And I think she can also be really nice and generous and, you know, like adopting kids and probably giving to charities and doing this. Like, I think two things, I think she's has both, both things in her. I guess we're all complex, you know, complex in that way, but right. I think that she can be mean, but I think that she can also be pretty nice. So yeah. Uh, Arsenio takes the chance. I, I forget what she, what insult she throws his way, but he says something like, why are you being so mean? That's why vanilla ice left you. I know. <laughs> I know. And she was just like, Ooh, I know. We learned a lot this year. I had no idea she went out with him, but she went out with a lot of people during that time. Like yeah, she, he's just an unlikely one, but um, yeah, it was real. It sure was. But yeah, I mean, as far as Madonna, what can I say? As a young woman, Madonna was it for me. And I'll tell you why. Because I, again, I'm going back to my strict Colombian upbringing. Dad was like, you're not going to have a boyfriend until you are out of college you know, and we weren't allowed to do anything. So there was that whole thing of like, why are women not allowed to do? Like, I, I kind of felt like that repression, like, why am I not allowed to do what I want to do? And when I saw Madonna just be who she wants to be, and she also was came from a strict upbringing and she was being bold and sexy and all that stuff. She was like my hero. Like, I don't have to be a certain, like I can be, I can be bold. I can be daring. I kind of felt, I I found inspiration through her image and through her music from, from the time I was in my teens up until I was in college. I always thought she's cool. She's not going to, you know, act like everybody else. She's going to be unconventional, you know, like I I, I just naturally, I gravitated towards that. I don't know if it was in part because I was rebelling against the strict upbringing that I thought she was so cool because uh, it wasn't like I was doing anything wild or crazy or anything, but I just thought she was pretty cool. Yeah, I think she was a, a not, I don't want to say role model. That's not the right word, but she was someone that all of us in our Catholic high school had as a point of reference. Like, you know, once I get out of here, there's no telling what I could do. <laughs> right, right. It's like, wait a minute. I don't have to. Yeah, I don't. Just because, you know, we're in this situation doesn't mean I, I am not free to be, like, it's weird. It was a weird thing. It's almost like, okay, like, I don't, I don't have to subscribe to somebody else's thought on, on anything, mm-hmm. on religion. I, I can, I can be who I want to be. And she was the only one that I can really point to. I did have a little bit of a connection with Janet Jackson when she came out with the Control album. It was that same kind of thing. Because yeah. in that song, Control, she talks about like her parents are not going to control her. And, and so again, I, as a young girl in a situation with a strict dad, I felt that like, like, look, she's independent. I'm going to be independent. I'm not going to be controlled by a man. So, and it also had, I also had that feeling like when I get older, I'm not going to be controlled by a man, you know? Yeah, that was a good learning. And I will say we didn't go to the strictest of Catholic schools, but to some extent, that's just how you perceive yourself as a teenager, right? It's like, I'm being held back by the man. (laughs) Yes, I felt like I was, or that I needed to subscribe to a certain thought, or I needed to accept that this is the way I have to live my life because the Bible says this, or I don't know. I felt a lot of that. So I, I, there was a time even where I rejected, I rejected it all. And then as I got older, I saw, I saw different, you know, it was a different process, but for that time period, I was pretty, you know, I made my mom crazy with some of the comments I made. There was a time where I was, I hate to say this, but I threw out a Bible. Because I, I, oh, that's a weird thing. Yeah, to do. and I, you're like Sinead O'Connor. I, and I, <laughs> I was, but I don't, I don't even remember that. But Cindy and Lucy actually reminded me pretty recently that I threw away a Bible and that Mom cried 
because she Aww. she was like, oh, my God, she's like, this woman's going to live like some kind of crazy life without God. Because I was thinking like, because I, I, I and I remember in class challenging like Sister Shirley or challenging people like with questions like, how do we know this is true? And how do we you know, I was like, I was kind I wasn't really bad, but I was I was a kind of a pain. <laughs> and I was, you know, and I made my mom cry and stuff. And I feel bad because I don't I, I don't think the same way anymore. And I definitely believe in God. And, you know, I, I see the value of the but the biblical stories and all that stuff. And um, I'm a different person. But but I think I was going through my rebellious period and Madonna was part of that. I have a quick story about Madonna and Catholic school. And it's actually um, a little bit of a different take on yours. So I didn't always go to Catholic school. I went to public school up through the eighth grade and my junior high public school was a little bit rough. Like there were some bullies. So it was a big switch for me to, to go to Bayview. It was a little, in a lot of ways, it was like a kinder, gentler school. Yeah. Like, I don't remember a bully. So that was different. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, it, but, and, and I hate, it, it was kind of a, it, it's a convoluted thing. It's, it's a, or I should say it's a complex thing. It's like, I, I loved, like it, it was, it was a paradox really, because you had nuns telling us you can be whatever you can want to be. You know, you, you, if you study, you can be powerful. You can, you know, like they were teaching us this message of like women's empowerment and getting yeah, educated. It was very much a feminist message. Right. But yet their role in, in the church is like somewhat subservient, you know, subservient, not subservient, yeah. but, but it's, it, it's weird that they were such that they were influenced us in the way that they did given their own roles in the church. So, I, one of my first classes was a uh, drama class, which I had no business being in because I've never been, unlike you, I've never been any kind of a I wish I had dramatic taken, success. You know but. what? I did take drama. <laughs> so I'm in this class and it's in a basement, I remember. And Sister Charlene gives out a clipboard this first day and she says, okay, girls, uh, I'd like you to write down on this paper if you've ever taken any kind of dance because I want to see what I'm working with, right? Oh. And I was thinking, wait, based on my... <laughs> I'm thinking, wait, hold on, it's drama. How come you would have to dance? Uh, well, I don't know, but this is what she wanted. So uh, I was thinking, I just came from this school, public school, where if you admitted that you took dance, you'd probably get beaten up. So I thought, no chance I'm writing down that I took ballet. Like, sorry, sister, but... <laughs> <laughs> no. I'll be keeping that to myself. You know, <laughs> oh, that's funny. But the clipboard's coming around and I'm seeing all the girls writing down stuff. And by the time it gets to me, I see that girls are writing down that they took tap, disco, all kinds of stuff. So I said, all right, well, this is a whole new world. I'm not going to get beat up. So I'll write down what I really did. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Oh, my gosh. And then Sister Charlene reads the, the clipboard, everybody's notes. And I won't say the person's real name. Let me think of a fake name. I'll say Donna. Okay. Says, oh, Donna, I see that you've you've taken a lot. This person had taken disco and all this stuff. And Donna says, oh, yeah, I learned the whole routine to Madonna's Borderline. You want to see it? And she jumps up and like sings and dances straight through the whole routine. No. Yeah. Like sings like, and dances the whole routine. No. Yeah. Not not good. But <laughs> <laughs> but why would, if you're going to do that, it should be damn good. You know, if you're going to sing the whole thing. Well, this is the thing. When I say it was kinder, a kinder atmosphere, like Donna was not beat up after class. And I felt like 
all right, so we can just do whatever. This is good. Oh, we're going to have to talk about that <laughs> offline. I want to know exactly who we're talking about here. <laughs> wow. You definitely, I, I think you could probably almost guess who I that am, was. But. I have an idea, but I don't know if I'm completely, I don't know if I'm right. Oh my God, that's funny. But um, you know what? You know, and again, I remember us with the bows in our hair, like Madonna definitely influenced the style. Yeah. And, you know, part of the raising the skirt stuff, you know, and being rebellious, probably partly influenced by people, you know, in the entertainment industry. And she, you know, she was all about that being being a little bit adventurous with your clothing and, you know, style and makeup. Yeah, she was always on the edge. And one thing I noticed right at the start of this interview that I actually looked up, she talks about Arsenio's monologue and that he once again was uh, putting down LaToya Jackson. Yes. And in retrospect, it seems kind of weird, like, let's not pick on LaToya. But she says to him, oh, good monologue, throwing shade. Yeah. And I thought, I've only come across that slang in the past couple of years. How was she using this in 1992? Like, what is she in a space capsule or something? Yeah, yeah. I guess it was like, you know, sometimes it's used, but not as well known. And then, you know, sometimes I think terms circulate, like they, you know, they become a little bit more popular at certain times. So yeah. Well, it became revealed because that term came from the drag community. Yeah. And later in this interview, they said, Rosie says that they went to a drag bar when they were in Indiana. I think they were filming there. Yeah. And it was funny because a drag artist was doing an impersonation of Madonna and Madonna was, you know, giving him dollar bills. And he, Rosie, is very clear uh, when she says he and Madonna corrects and says she right when this performer realizes that it's Madonna you know freaks out that's not who you expect to be in the audience oh absolutely not can you imagine you doing a show in the real artist is there that's that's crazy but I thought well she was just in a drag bar so she probably heard that she um she did a lot for the LGBT community LGBTQ community and still still is definitely a major force Madonna, Madonna was the person that uh, one of the celebrities that most influenced me during my early years, I would have to say. And I, you know, I guess I just the the, the thing about Madonna was or the the thing about Madonna is the way that she was able to attain such a mass, you know, such a big level of success. And the way that she got there is always has always intrigued me. You know, the fact that she came from nothing, really, you know, went to New York with thirty five dollars in her pocket, uh, you know, didn't have much in the way of anything, worked at different jobs, just like anybody really worked at Dunkin Donuts. She did get into nude modeling. Um, Yeah. And they said in this, in this interview that um, she was in Playboy and I remembered she wasn't really in play. She wasn't trying to be in Playboy. Playboy bought some old pictures of her. Right. Right. She, you know, definitely was bold and hungry and not afraid to do what she needed to do. And she was relentless as far as, um, Getting getting to the top of her game. I mean, she, you know, would bug DJs and say, like, look, I'm just going to stand here until you play this demo. You know, I've got this really hot song on here. You know, like she it was not easy. Like she had to, like, really scratch and scrape to, to get to where she where she is now. Yeah, she does a little bit of that on this uh, in this interview. What's the name of her record label? Um, well, she has her own. I want to say Maverick. Maverick is her own record label. Yes, it's her own one. And so in this interview, um, she's talking a little bit about Maverick because she says on the air to Arsenio, when are you going to have proper grounds? Yeah. Group that I'm like grooming. And I love he's like, 
Yeah, I'll have them on when they have an album. Yeah. I'm not going to have on a group that. <laughs> right. Again, that snarky, you know, whatever. And um, yeah, no, she's been very successful as a, as a, that company has done really well. This is why she's worth almost $800 million because she's. Wow. She, Can you imagine? I know. I, it, through her own work and through the company and just her own intelligence. I mean, she came from, you know, this is why I admire her so. I mean, you, you get to New York with $35 in your pocket. And years later, you're like a multimillionaire, you know, uh, at the top of her game, known worldwide. And uh, and like I said, she, it wasn't easy. She she and she was bold in, in, in that in the sense that when she was learning how to play the guitar and do the songwriting during that time, she actually got selected as a backup dancer for Patrick Hernandez who was famous for one song. He's like, he has one song, which I think is Born to be Alive. I don't know if you are familiar with that disco song. Oh, I know song. that song. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I could sing it right now, but I won't. <laughs> uh, but anyway, she, you know, they were like, look, we can make you a star. She went to Paris with him. She did backup singing there. And they, they, they you know, they let her know, like, you know, we can really work with you and take you somewhere. But, but she didn't like the direction that things were going in. And she was like savvy enough and confident enough to say, no, I'm going to leave you guys and I'm going to go off on my own. At that age, at 19 or 20, I don't think I would have had the confidence to say, I'm going to just dump you guys and go on my own. I would have I would have probably thought, no, I need to hang on to these people because they're managers, they're in the game and they're probably going to help me. But she knew. Right, right. Most people would. Right. Like, this is my ticket. Right. But she was bold enough and smart enough to know this is not going to work. And already, you know. Already you can see that she was attracting enough attention where somebody was saying to her, we can make you a star because not everybody's going to get that that message or that support. And then, you know, and then she came back. She lived with her boyfriend for a little longer. She became part of his group. And then when she would perform with 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 the group, she would only have two numbers where she would actually get up there and sing. and, 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 you know, and she said, you know, when I would get up there and sing people would really react to me. Like, you know, it was like applause city and it was really like a different energy from when other people would get up and sing. So she felt like, hey, I need to be the leader of this group. And so she eventually brought that up to the leaders of the group because she wasn't, you know, she was, the leaders of the group were really two brothers, one of which was her boyfriend at the time. You know, she's like, I should be the leader. I should, I should do more songs. And they just didn't want to, they said, this is not a group that's made, you know, it's not about, one person being the leader, everybody has to take a turn. And, you know, like they didn't feel like that was a, the appropriate role, you know, like the appropriate thing to have, you know, her be the leader of, of the group. So she was like, well, I guess I'm going to have to form my own group. And she went off and did that, formed her own group. I mean, you have no idea if you're going to be successful or not. She formed her own group and she was eventually able to get gigs. And she, through diligence, was able to get a well-known manager to listen to her tape. But she mm-hmm. basically forced this tape down this woman's throat. It was like constant, like this guy lived in the same building where the guy that worked with this woman lived in the same building as she did. So she was like, please, you know, give her this tape. And she just wouldn't let up. And finally he, you know, just to get her, get him, get her off his back. He was like, fine, fine. You know, she'll, she'll go and check out your performance at this place. And the woman went there and right away she was like, I'm going to sign you. But it's like all of the different things that she had to do to to get there. And then once she was signed with this woman, she worked with her for a period of time. And then, you know, and then was like, you know, what? I don't like the direction this is going. And she went mm-hmm. and she cut that tie off also and, and was on her own. 
And then the the end of the story is she she was able to get a record deal with Sire Records because she convinced this DJ to play her everybody song, the well-known everybody. Oh yeah. She convinced that DJ to play it and the the Sire Records do, you know, the Sire Records executive was like this this girl's a star. We're going to sign her. And that's where every Do you remember the Oh god. Oh no, go ahead. Go ahead. Do you remember the famous story when she was on American Bandstand? Oh yes, I do. So Dick Clark says to her, "What do you hope will happen, mm-hmm. you know, in the rest of your professional life? What's your dreams? What's left?" Do you remember what she says? I want to rule the world. Yeah, to rule the world. <laughs> and she did it. And doesn't hesitate. No other language around it. Just straight up to rule the world. And I love that Dick <laughs> Clark in interviews had said, look, you know, people think she's a one hit wonder. They're wrong. And yet no. they were really wrong because she was she was smart enough to really she's got her finger on the pulse of things. And she's very like she it, from before she was a star, she was able to really hone in on what was going to work for her and what was not. That's why she was able to, to cut off ties with the with the uh, Patrick Hernandez people. And then she cut off ties with Camille Barboni, which, you know, who was her first manager and a well-known manager because she knew like these people are not working for me. Like for her mm-hmm. to have that instinct at such a young age and really and confident. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. So I, you know, I think she was born to be a star and, you know, maybe somebody might argue that she doesn't have the best voice in the world or she's not the best dancer, but she does sing well and she does dance well, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And her, and she has that star quality and she writes songs. Yes. She writes, she wrote like a prayer. She's written a lot of like big hits, true love. I want to say she had a hand in Papa don't preach. Um, I think so too. Yeah, she's very. She's a really. She was. She uh, has a real knack for knowing what is going to be a hit song, and um, and that's a talent because you can have the greatest voice in the world, but if you don't have the knack or the the instinct for what's going to like keep an audience engaged, then you you only have one part of the talent. You know, you're not the complete right. picture. So anyway, <laughs> yep, I think I've said enough. On Ma- I think I've said enough on Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, I have an attachment to this, you know, to this uh, subject. Fabulous. Coolness. We'll talk later next week. It's fun. Bill and Hillary. Yeah, that's a good one. I know. I can't wait. <laughs> All right, Jamie. Gracias. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. All right. So in the past, we've had a, a mention of our Twitter account, which is at Podsenio, which I think is a pretty clever name, if I do say so myself. <laughs> and what we do there is we've posted some graphics, one for each one or more for each um, podcast about the guests or some things that were said. And we're hoping that you visit that and uh, retweet those uh, graphics. And a couple reasons we want to do that. First reason, we'd like to know if you're listening. We have some stats, and we know we've got listeners in places like Zimbabwe and Poland and all kinds of cool places. And if you'd like to just show us that you're listening, it'd be great to see some retweets on there. And, you know, I don't know how you feel, Natalie, but I'm thinking that if we get evidence that some folks are listening, I might be able to talk you into doing a second season. Maybe. (laughs) I know that would motivate me as a podcast listener. I always, if I find one I like, I always want more, so... Yeah, absolutely. That's one reason. Let's keep it coming. Zimbabwe. I never, 
that wouldn't have crossed my mind that somebody in Zimbabwe I know. would be listening. Thank you, Lisa. I know. Too bad it's not Zamunda, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Coming to America? <laughs> but the other reason is a non-selfish reason. Uh, we think that Arsenio could be uh, in the running to replace Ellen. And not too long yeah. ago, there was a hashtag going around. Hashtag replacements for Ellen. So if you have enjoyed our podcast, if you feel like Arsenio deserves that chance, we're going to encourage you to retweet with that hashtag replacements for Ellen. Uh, you might even tweet at the Ellen show or at Arsenio uh, just to let them know what's what you're trying to do. And we would feel like we really accomplished something if you did that. That would be so awesome. And never mind if our, if Arsenio listens to us, I think like that would be it. Like, forget it. Like, you know, that would be almost like a little mini right. come true. <laughs> it would. So help two girls out, will you? I mean, we don't ask much. We put a lot of love and care into this. (laughs) (laughs) We found the recording of the Green Line train on freesound.org. Thank you to Craig Hagan. This concludes our broadcast day. Good night and God bless America.